I said last week, the reason that we're looking at Psalms 1 to 4 is because in Psalms 1 to 4, we get introduced to some of the big ideas from the book of Psalms. So as you read through these Psalms, you actually get prepared to read the whole of Psalms. Um, and so one of the things I'd encourage you to do is if you are, um, is to open up the Bible and just maybe during this year, you could think, what would it look like for me to read through the book of Psalms? What would it look like for me to do that? And um, so after we've kind of worked through these four Psalms, you could think, okay, I'm going to read a psalm a day for the next few months, and that would serve you well. Um, so let, let me encourage you to do that. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we were getting introduced to some of the, big, the key characters from the book of Psalms. So in Psalm 1, you're introduced to the blessed person and the wicked person. And the blessed person is the one who holds on to God, who follows him, who obeys him. The blessed person is not the person who is healthy and wealthy and who everything goes well with in life. The blessed person is the person who knows God's goodness and experiences it in his life. Uh, and, and the wicked person is the person who rejects God, who doesn't walk in his ways, who, who goes their own way. Uh, and so we're introduced to these two characters. And as you read through the book of Psalms, you'll hear them come up again. You'll, you'll, you'll see the blessed person in Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. And you'll see Psalm talking about the wicked people as well. Uh, and so Psalm 1 helps us understand who those people are. Last week in Psalm 2, we were introduced to two kinds of kings. Earthly kings who rage against the God of heaven. Who say, we don't want you to be king. We want to do life our own way. We want to make the rules. We want to rule over our lives. There, there, you'll see those kings in the book of Psalms. But then we're also introduced to another king. God's anointed king, ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the one who truly rules over this world with righteousness, with goodness, with grace and with mercy. And so, again, you will read of kings, you will read Psalms to the king in the book of Psalms. And as you're introduced to those two types of kings, you're able to understand those Psalms to think about what they mean. So that's, that's where we've been so far. This week we're going to be in Psalm 3. And we're going, to, we're going to move away from some of the key characters in the book of Psalms to some of the key themes and ideas in the book of Psalms. And actually, as we turn to Psalm 3, we're probably thrown straight into what is the biggest single theme in the book of Psalms. And it is the, the theme of trouble and suffering and trials. If you read through the Psalms, you'll just read again and again people talking about their, their suffering, their struggles, their troubles, the trials that they are going through. You, you, may, have, um, you may have heard people say things like, how could you believe in God when there's so much suffering in the world? You, you might have found yourself feeling like that and asking that question. You might even be here today asking that question. How, how could Christianity be true? How could there be a God of love when there's so much suffering in this world, when there's so many difficult things, when people still get ill and die and suffer. It's often not that the theoretical question that gets to us. It's the personal question, isn't it? It's the troubles that we face. How can God love me when my marriage is falling apart? How can I keep believing in God when my mental health is so bad? What kind of God would put me in such a difficult situation? Now, now, these are obvious questions to ask. They're questions that people have asked throughout history. People have again and again asked that question. And because of that, it's no surprise that the Bible has an awful lot to say about it. 
In many ways, the Bible is a book about suffering. That's what the Bible is. It begins Genesis 3 with the origin of suffering. Why does suffering exist in the world? It goes through to Revelation, to the end of suffering, to a world without any more suffering. It goes from the experience of people who suffer in the book of Psalms to a God who will himself suffer in the Gospels. The, the Bible is a book about suffering. And here, in Psalm 3, we're going to be introduced, thrown right into a world of trouble. A world where people struggle and suffer and hurt. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 3. This is how it starts. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, now this is poetry. Psalms is a book of, of, of poetry. Uh, and, and because of that, it's written in such a way that those verses could be about any, almost any difficult situation someone's going through. They're not, they're not specific. They're, they're written in such a way that they connect, can connect with you in your troubles and with me in my troubles and with David as he was writing this. It's written to be sort of general. But interestingly, you, if you've got the psalm open in front of you, you will see at the top, we're actually told what situation prompted this psalm to be written. So we're told who it was written by. It was written by David, who... Uh, if you're uh, kind of not that familiar with Bible stories, David of David and Goliath fame, who became the king of Israel. So it's written by him, and we're told that it's written when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, let me just give you a, 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 some quick highlights of the story. This is what happens. So David has this son, Absalom, and Absalom grows up into a man. Uh, and as he uh, grows up, he decides that he wants to be king. And this isn't just like a uh, click of the fingers, yeah, I just fancy it. It's a long, drawn-out process. So he spends four years battling uh, to win the hearts and minds of the people. He goes out around the place and says, if I was king, I'd look after you a bit better. I'd do it better than David would do it. And so he starts going around and just convincing people that he'd make a great king. And eventually he goes to this place called Hebron and he declares himself as king. So David is in Jerusalem. And, and he is king, and, but, but uh, Absalom goes to heaven and he says, I am now king of Israel, come follow me. And he gets this huge army of like 10,000 people and he takes them down into Jerusalem. And David, king of Israel in Jerusalem, is forced to flee. The, the danger is so great that he's forced to run out of Jerusalem and to flee into the country. Now, now I don't want to dwell too much on that story. You can read about it um, earlier on in the Bible, but I don't want to dwell too much on it. But what I do want us to acknowledge is that there's a lot going on in that story. If you think about what David is going through as he writes this psalm, there's like a family dynamic to it, isn't there? So there's divisions in the family. It isn't just like any old person has stood up and said, I'm king instead of you. It's his son. And there'll have been many years leading up to this of watching that relationship strain, of him thinking, ah, oh, why have myself and Absalom grown so distant? What's happened to that relationship? What's gone wrong in it? Wishing that that was different. Wishing that the family could be brought back together. So there's the family element of it. But then there's also the betrayal of it. In fact, 
betrayal is going to be one of the key themes you're going to see through Psalms as well. So you get, if you read through Psalms, you're going to read again and again of close friends who proved to be enemies, of people who you thought were close and were for you being against you, of being unsure who to trust in the world. So there's this family element, but there's also the betrayal. It, it, someone has let you down, they've betrayed you. And then there's the fear that goes on with it. I mean, David was so afraid that he had to flee Jerusalem. He went into hiding, in essence. Genuine fear for safety and for his life. And then there's the inner turmoil. As he's fled and he's alone. Well, he's not alone. He's got some people around with him. But he's got, he's got his group with him. As he's there, it's that inner turmoil of, what am I actually going to do? You know when life's hard and you're suffering and you lie awake in bed thinking, what on earth am I going to do about this situation? How can I make something as broken as my son, having gone up, got an army, taken over Jerusalem, how am I going to make this right again? You're at that point where there's no good solutions to this problem. That's the context that Psalm 3 is written into. A context of pain and suffering and betrayal and struggle. It's going to be one of the constant themes of the book of Psalms. And actually there's two specific elements to this suffering that David's going to pull out for us here. And these are two just, again, kind of crucial ideas of things that cause trouble and pain in our lives that we're going to see again and again in, in Psalms. The first is the pain caused by feeling that you are alone and surrounded by enemies. That, that phrase, how many are my foes, you'll see it again and again in the book of Psalms or similar phrases. You're going to see phrases where people describe themselves as being surrounded by enemies. How everyone has abandoned them. How they are forsaken and isolated without friends in the world. And you can imagine why David would feel like that at that moment. Because not only has he got the whole nation having risen up against him, I mean, that's quite a significant rejection. You know, it's like thousands of people who've decided they don't want him to be king. Not only is it that, but it's also his, his close family has turned against him. His own son's opposing him. It's not hard to see why he might feel like he's surrounded by enemies. But the reason that that's talked about so much in the Psalms is because that feeling is universal. We all know what it is to feel like we are alone in the world. Maybe it's in your family. You have an argument with your kids and suddenly you wonder, what hope is there for me if even my kids don't like me? I can't even get my family to be on board with this. What, what hope have I got? And suddenly you feel alone in your own family. Maybe it's in your marriage, as you feel distant from your spouse, and you feel like, am I the only person who's working on this? Am I the only person who cares about this? And you feel alone and isolated. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe in your workplace you feel isolated, you feel targeted, maybe you even feel bullied. Maybe it's in a, a football team or some other club you're a part of where you look at it and you know there's an in crowd and you know you're not a part of it. Maybe it's on a Friday night as you 
look for something to do and scroll through your phone book and realize you've got no one to contact and you're just going to watch Friends for the four millionth time. Or maybe it's, maybe it's simply as you live your life as a Christian, you know, marginalized, on the edges of a society that thinks you're a little bit mad or maybe a little bit simple or, or bigoted or whatever it is. We, we all know what it feels like to feel like we are alone in the world. Like no one understands us, like no one is for us. Like we're surrounded by hostile forces, trapped. No one around to help us get out. That, that is a suffering that all of us will know something of and that the book of Psalms will talk about again and again and again. But there is another pain that the book of Psalms is going to talk about. There's that pain, the pain of feeling alone, surrounded by hostile forces in a world. But here's the second pain that the Psalms will talk about, and it's the pain caused by doubt. You you see, doubt, specifically doubting God, doubting his goodness, his commitment to you, even his existence. Now, now that doubt, that makes every difficult thing we go through a, a double trial. Because not only do we have the difficult thing, but we also have alongside it, wondering whether we're going through this because God hates us, because God doesn't love us anymore, because God's abandoned us. He, here, it's David's enemies who are saying that to him. They're saying, your God won't rescue you, your God won't save you, your God won't deliver you. But in other places in the Psalms, it's not, it's not his enemies who say it. It is him himself feeling that. So you'll, you'll read him saying, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes it's other people saying that to you, feeding that doubt, saying, well, where's your God now as you go through that difficult time? Sometimes it's something we say to ourselves. Asking if God has forsaken us if he even hears us, does he even care about what I'm going through? We sing of his goodness and then we go into the difficult times of the week and we go, well, where is that goodness now? See, that's the, that's the pain of Psalm 3 verses 1 and 2. Alone in the world, feeling like we're surrounded by people who are hostile to us, who don't understand us, who don't care about us. And in, and in that, then, and where's God's? Is he not going to intervene? Does he not care either? Is he not going to deliver? Is he not going to do anything about this situation? Those are two of the great troubles of the book of Psalms. If they are are troubles that you know something of, if you know what it is to lie in bed and think, well, where's God in this? If you know what it is to feel alone and isolated in the world, read the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is going to go there again and again and again. It's going to take you on the journey of people who have, who've walked that road before you. You see, that's why they're introduced here, because these are not extraordinary struggles. These are the normal trials of those who seek to know and follow God. I just, I just want you to understand that. Your trials, the trials that you are going through, they are specific to you, and the hurt is real. And I don't want to diminish those things. They are real and they are specific and the pain is real. But you do need to understand they are not unique and they are not new. 
The question is, what's the answer to suffering? Like, what, what, what are you going to do about it? We're all going to go through it. We're all going to feel these things. But what's the solution to it? We all have one. You have one. You, you could probably work it out if you were willing to. You could, you, could, you could sit down this evening when you got home from church, and you could sit down and go, okay, what do I tend to do when I'm suffering? Where do I tend to look to uh, for relief and for hope from that? You'll be able to work out what you think the solution is. Probably the number one solution to suffering in, in our culture, I think is probably money. You can tell me I'm wrong, but I think it probably is. We think if we just had a bit more money, then... I could spend more time with my family and my family wouldn't be such a mess. Or then I could spend a bit less time working and I wouldn't be so tired. Or then I'd have less to worry about. I wouldn't be lying in bed worrying about money so I'd be a bit less stressed so I'd be less irritable with people. If I just had a bit more money, I'd be able to afford more comforts. I think generally... It's, that is the great hope of Western society, that maybe we can just buy our way out of pain. Maybe there's a figure, and if we get there, we'll be able to buy our way out of it. We don't know what the number is, we don't know how much we need, but we just think, if I could just get that much, my life would be so much simpler. My pain would be so much less. Uh, for others, it's not money, it's, for others, it's other things. It might be relationships. I could cope with the pain if I just had people to go through it with. If I just had a spouse, a child, a friend, whatever it is. Some of us, it's, it's lifestyle. We, we put our hope in lifestyle changes. It's a better diet, better sleep, more exercise, better routines. You know, the kind of classic, when life gets hard, I hit the gym kind of approach to it. If I can just get the right lifestyle in place, that's going to that's gonna solve my suffering. That's going to deal with the trials that I face. For others, we go, okay, it's not any of those things. It's, it's, it's about a mental battle. It's an attitude thing. The way we deal with our suffering is found in our minds. We need to, be, we need to learn to be more thankful, to be more positive, to you know, look on the bright side a bit more. I don't know. I, I don't know what it is for you. You'll, you'll be able to work it out better. But you'll have something. You'll have something that you think, this is, this is the thing that I think if I could just do that, then I'd be able to cope with my suffering. Then I'd be able to deal with my suffering. Then I'd be able to get rid of my suffering, maybe. What do we need to suffer well? Just look with me at verses 3 to 6, and I think we'll see how the psalmist answers this. This is what he says. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Here's what I want to suggest this afternoon is the answer to suffering. And it's not primarily money or relationships or lifestyle or attitude. Although I just want to make it clear, I do think all those things can be helpful. So don't go, Ben said it didn't matter, so I'm just going to slob out. Like, I do think all those things can be helpful. I'm not, I'm not anti those things. I just don't think they're ultimately the answer. Here is the answer to suffering that, that David finds in the Psalms. And here's what I want to suggest it is. It's theology. <laughs> Sarah is unconvinced. I'm not. I'm not. 
Now, I don't, know, I don't know what you think of when you think of theology. Like, when you think of theology, maybe you think of, like, old men in, like, tweed suits in, in like, university buildings, uh, kind of looking at stuff and reading articles and writing. So maybe that's what you think of when you think of theology. Or maybe you just think of, when you think of theology, you just think of something that's boring and irrelevant. It's just, you know, it's for academics. It's not for me. But here in this psalm, we see that it's David's theology which enables him to go through these trials. It's his theology which enables him to go to sleep at night. When you are anxious, when you feel alone, when you feel trapped, when you feel confused and betrayed, how do you sleep? How how do you sleep in those times? If you're anything like me, you, you probably sleep quite badly during those times. You know, your, your mind's going 100 miles an hour as, as you lie in bed trying to work out what am I going to do in this situation? What's happening? Can't organize our thoughts into anything meaningful, but we also can't sleep. Not David. David says he can lie down and sleep. Or, or how, about, how about when you're suffering? Do you, do you tend to feel afraid as you go through suffering? Do you, do you tend to ask yourself these kind of questions? I know I do. Well, what if it gets worse? What if it never ends? Or what if it starts impacting other areas of my life or other people in my life? It's easy when we're facing trials and suffering to feel afraid, but not David here. He tells in verse 6 that despite all his enemies, he will not fear. And the reason why I say it's, it's his theology that does this is notice the pattern in the verse. Verses 1 and 2, they're all about David. They're about him. You can just see it in the words that he uses. So he talks about my foes. He talks about those who rise against me. He says many are saying of me. His focus is on himself in verse 1 and 2. What is it that I am going through? What is the pain that I am feeling? But that focus shifts in verse 3 and 6. It shifts clearly with the the words at the start of verse 3, but you. Do you see? He's he's, he's changed his emphasis. It's now no longer about him and what he's going through. He now says, but you. And then he goes on to say, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, again and again and again. He says, you, Lord, are a shield. He says, I call out to you, the Lord. He says, the Lord sustains me. What's happened here? It's just theology. That's just simple theology. Theology is a posh way of saying what we know about God. That's all the word means. Theo, God, ology, the knowledge of. Theology is just the knowledge of God. That's all the word means. And David knows certain things about God and they help him give voice to his sufferings. They help him sleep at night. They free him from fear. What's the answer that David finds to his suffering? It's his theology. It's what he knows about God that solves that problem for him. And what is it that he knows about God? I want to suggest there's three things he says he knows about God in this psalm. First one is this. He knows that God is with him. It's the first thing he knows about God. When he feels alone, when he feels like he's surrounded by enemies, what does he remind himself of? He reminds himself that actually he's not alone because God is with him. God hears him when he speaks to him. 
When he feels like he's surrounded by enemies, he knows that he has a God who sticks closer than a brother, who never leaves him, who is with him in the suffering, who ultimately, in the person of Jesus, is going to suffer for him. This is what you need to know if you're going to face suffering well in your life. You need to know that you do not suffer alone. You never suffer alone. So often it's that that sense of aloneness, of isolation, that's what makes the suffering so unbearable. But David clings on to that truth. I'm not alone. God hears me and he is walking this path with me. That's the first thing that David knows about God. Here's the second thing. He knows that God is in control. I love, I love the bit he talks about sleep here. because He uses sleep as his great example of how he knows that God is in control. This is the example. His example is, every night I go into a state where I am no longer in control. It's the state of sleep. As I am asleep, I no longer have control. I, I have no control. I, I, I am asleep. And what happens during that time when I am out of control of whether I continue to live or not? God sustains me. He, the next morning I wake because God has sustained me through that period. So often in the midst of suffering, we feel like life is out of control. And what we want to do is we want to be able to manage it and change it, to get back in control of our life. And so we lie in bed, scheming, coming up with ideas. How can I get back in control of this, this life that's fallen to pieces around me? How do I bring it back under my control? That's going to lead to a lot of sleepless nights. Because ultimately we can't. We can't control everything in our lives. David reminds himself that he puts himself at the mercy of God every night when he goes to sleep. He relinquishes control every night when he sleeps and God continues to wake him. So as he faces the uncertainty of his, his, his situation, he's able to trust the God who sustains him through sleep to sustain him through this, whatever it is that he's going through. So, so he, knows, he knows two things about God that help him to navigate suffering. He knows that God is with him and he knows that God is in control. And here's the third thing he knows. He knows that God is his shield and his protector. God is ultimately the one who will protect him. God will protect David from Absalom and he will protect us from the things we face. Now that is a hard thing to believe when you are suffering. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking... It must have been hard for David to believe that God was his protector when, he's just, when Absalom's just coming and like invaded Jerusalem and kicked him out. It's like, where were you then? Like, if you're my shield, you didn't do a very good job. Like, I wasn't protected. My sons raised an army against me and overthrown the kingdom. I thought you were my shield. I thought you were the one who protects me from this. Where were you then? How can David, in verse 3, declare that God is his shield... When at the moment, he seems to be losing. This is what David understands. He understands that God's protection is not a promise of protection from every piece of suffering or every difficult situation he could face. That's not what God, it means for God to be our shield and our protector. No, it's a promise that ultimately, at the final reckoning, God will protect him. 
I'm going to see if I can explain this in a way that works, but if not, then you'll just have to pick it up in life groups during the week. Like, ultimately, this is what we see in Jesus. As Jesus died on the cross, he, brought our, he bought our protection from sin and from illness and from death and from judgment. He did those things. But we still get sick. We still sin. We still die. We still face judgment. So what does it mean when we say that God that God in the person of Jesus died to protect us from those things. Well, it means that in the end, those things will not have the final say. That's the protection. It's the protection that in the end, those things will not be victorious. We will get sick, but sickness will not ultimately defeat us. We will still sin, but one day we will be finally victorious against it. We will still die, but one day we'll be resurrected. We do still face judgment, but one day we'll be finally vindicated and declared innocent. That's the protection that God offers us. It's not that we never go through those things. It's that when the game is played and we reach the end, each of those things loses. Illness is not victorious. Death is not victorious. Sin is not victorious. Judgment is not victorious. Because God has shielded us and protected us from those things. In the midst of suffering, we remind ourselves that God is our shield. And ultimately, whatever suffering we face, it cannot defeat us. It can hurt and it can push and it can cause all kinds of trouble along the way, but it cannot win. Three truths that David knew about God that helped him in the face of suffering. God is with us in our suffering. God is in control, and he is our shield and our protector. Here's, I've, I've talked to a few people in this room about this, so apologies for repeating myself. But if you look back through history, these are truths that, ha- that have been central to how people have understood and navigated suffering and loss. Just, they were just, this is just how people dealt with suffering and loss in their life for hundreds of years, for centuries, dating back at least to the Psalms. So that's at least like 3,000 years. People have understood these central truths about God and they have found in them a way to navigate tremendous suffering. For, for most of human history, infant mortality was a much more normal part of life than it is now, much more common. And people found comfort in that, in knowing that God was with them in their loss, that he was in control, and that only he could protect them. Or or cast your mind back to the days of the early church, periods of history where they were surrounded by enemies with the threat of imprisonment and the torture and death. Again and again, they found comfort in knowing that God was with them trusting that he was in control, relying on him as their shield. This was just how people navigated suffering for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Whereas now, as a culture, we have rejected these central truths and we have no idea how to navigate suffering anymore. She's not got a clue. It completely derails us. We've denied God's existence or his goodness or his control. And so now we are entirely lost in the face of suffering. As a culture, we don't know how to suffer anymore. Because for hundreds of years, this is how people suffered. 
It was by knowing these truths that helped them find a path through it. A pain-filled path, a path of anguish. You read of it in the Psalms, but it helped them through it. Now, with the absence of God, loss is crippling, suffering is pointless and unfair. When pain comes, we are alone. And I just want to be clear, it's impacting the church. I'm not, I'm not talking about out there, this is what's going on. In the church, we no longer know how to navigate suffering and difficulties anymore. When things get hard, rather than clinging on to God's presence, we, we think God's abandoned us. When suffering comes, again and again now, we view it as totally pointless. You know, a, a needless evil, rather than as a means of how God grows us. When we can't find a solution to our problems, we give up in despair, rather than remembering that we were never in control anyway, but we have a God who is. Here's the question for you, and you can go away and, and think about this. If this is the only time you ever come to Grace Church, then at least you've got this to think about on the back of it. For the, for the rest of us who, uh, who are still kind of coming along, getting to life groups, let's, let's, let's think about this. How are you going to respond when suffering comes into your life? How are you going to respond to that time? Maybe, maybe for some of you, that is right here, right now. It's not a when it comes in. It's how am I going to respond to the stuff I'm going through right now? What are you going to do? Are you in those times, are you going to give up on God? Are you going to withdraw into a destructive cycle? You know, just things have got bad, so they might as well get worse. Or are you going to just seek escapism in the latest Netflix series? Are you going to sink into depression? Or are you going to do what the psalmist does? Are you going to cry out to God, find comfort in his presence, know his power, find hope in the fact that ultimately he is your shield? That's going to depend on your theology. It's all going to come down to your theology, how you're going to respond to suffering. I want you to have good theology because I want you to suffer well. That's why I want you to have good theology. That's why my prayer for Grace Church is that we will be a church where we have good theology, where we know who God is, who he actually is, who he declares himself to be. Not our ideas of who God is. Not who we want God to be, but where we actually know the living God because it's only when you know some truths about him that you're able to suffer well. If your theology is bad, suffering is likely to completely derail you. But if you know this God, well, then you, your suffering will still hurt and there will be pain and there will be anguish, but you will not face it alone and you will not give in to hopelessness. And then, what do you do then? You've, you've got the trial. You've got your theology. So what do you do? Verses 7 and 8. Read these last verses with me and then we'll wrap this up. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. May the Lord, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. You see, what do we do? Well, when we, when we suffer, but when we know who God is, well, what do we do as the final step in that? Well, we cry out to him to deliver us from our suffering. That's okay. I'm not saying just grin and bear it. I'm not saying your suffering's there and you're going to have to learn to deal with it. But do what he does. Pray to God, deliver me, God, from this. That's what we do as Christians, isn't it? 
We go, yes, this hurts, but I know who you are, God, and now I'm going to cry out to you and pray that you would deliver me from what I'm going through. That is entirely appropriate. As we know God's presence with us, as we trust in his sovereign control, as we experience his protection, we turn that into faith-filled prayers for deliverance. Hoping that we experience some of it now, knowing that we will one day experience it all as he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and all the pain and all the sadness and all the suffering is finally put behind us. I was thinking a lot this week about kind of what, how do we respond to this? And what, what do we do about this? And, and as I was thinking about that, um, the words to a hymn that we're going to sing in a minute kept coming back to my mind. It's the, it's the words to the, the hymn, uh, Is Well With My Soul, an old, old hymn, well, I don't know, 150 years old. Uh, many of you will, will know the story uh, of how that was written, um, but, but for those of you who don't, it's, wor- it's worth repeating, and for those of us who do, it's just a really helpful grounding uh, of this psalm. It was written by a man called Horatio Spafford. He was a successful lawyer in Chicago, um, made a lot of money, funded a lot of um, D.L. Moody's kind of evangelistic uh, kind of crusades and the things that he was doing at the time. He's a committed Christian. Uh, and in um, 1871, his, his only son died. So he had four daughters and a son. His only son died in 1871. So he's left with a wife and, and four children. And then in uh, 1871, later on that year, there was the Great Fire of Chicago. And the majority of his wealth was just wiped out from uh, that fire. So in 1873, uh, he decides that him and his family are going to go and they're going to support D.L. Moody on one of his tours, preaching tours of Europe. So they book a ship and they decide they're going to go over on this tour. And some business comes up, so he has to stay back in America. And the wife and children get on the ship. Uh, And before he's even left, he gets a telegram uh, informing him that the ship has crashed. And 200 and what's the number? 226 of the 307 people on the ship have perished. He later gets a telegram from his wife, which just reads, Saved alone. All four of his children, daughters, die on that ship. So he, he, gets, he gets on a, a, a ship from America to Wales, where his wife is, to go and pick up his wife. And, and as he's on the ship, the captain of the ship comes to him at one point and says, we've done the calculation, we think this is where the, the ship was wrecked. And at that point, he goes, he goes down into his cabin and he pens the words to this song that we're about to sing, It is well with my soul. That, that's the story that lies behind this song. That is somebody who knows how to suffer because his theology is good. He knows who God is in the midst of that suffering. Like David in the psalm, he found comfort and strength through what was incredible loss by remembering those central truths that God was with him through the suffering, that God was in control, that one day he would know God's protection and care as God returns to set all things right. I want us to sing these songs because I want us to drive this theology deep into our hearts. I want it to be something that we don't simply know in our minds, but that goes deep within us so that it can give us comfort and strength 
to navigate those sorrows which we will inevitably face. Let's uh, stand, let's sing this song together and let's allow our theology to go into our hearts.